in the campaign. Uh, so all that at 730. Uh, I want to remind everybody that since it's the 14th, it's Sunday the 14th, uh, this Saturday, upcoming Saturday is Juneteenth, June 19th is Juneteenth, which is the 155th anniversary of the recognition or the enforcement of, of emancipation, which uh, happened on June 19th, 1865, when federal troops were brought in to enforce Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation of January 1, 1863. It took two and a half years to begin enforcement, and this is a big year for Juneteenth. Now, you're probably aware that Donald Trump had, uh, I'm sure, at uh, Stephen Miller's uh, consult from his council, uh, suggested that Donald Trump do a rally in Tulsa, which is the site of um, one of the worst massacres against um, the uh, black middle class and, and black wealth and uh, in, in our history. So he was going to give a rally in Tulsa on Juneteenth uh, this year and backed off of that, which I think is pretty, pretty wise, um, but just disgusting all the same that that would even be uh, suggested. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I, I just... Stephen Miller is is a straight up white nationalist, and if you've noticed, Donald Trump has gone through quite a few uh, advisors. Stephen Miller's managed to stay on the team the whole time, so there is a an alignment of values and an alignment of styles between Donald Trump and and Miller. Um, so, you know, whenever you're starting to feel like Donald Trump is a clown and and uh, and he's he's self impugning, uh, just think about the people that are kind of on the inside and behind him and making decisions and and doing ex executing policy uh, for him. And things become a little bit more clear. Uh, I also want to, tonight, I want to get into the nitty-gritty. And we haven't done nitty-gritty in a while. But I want to do a little nitty-gritty on a piece that Matt Taibbi did this week called um, The American Press is Destroying Itself. And that's going to segue into our defunding the police. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and hear that nitty gritty music.
get right into it. So, you know, Matt Taibbi, I talk about Taibbi's stuff quite a bit on the show, and I'm a big fan. I love his stuff. I think that he's a great writer. And, you know, there's a, there's um, two sides to being a good reporter, and one side is knowing how to report the news and get it out there, and then the other side is being a good writer. And, um, you know, Taibbi's, Taibbi's uh, kind of the whole package in that respect. Uh, this particular piece, I read it real quick when it came out. It's called The American Press is Destroying Itself. It is on Taibbi's Substack. Uh, if you're not familiar with Substack, I've got a link in the show notes, and I've also got a, a link on Twitter to this article. But Substack allows you to support uh, writers who are serializing content. So um, that could be someone who covers news uh, week after week, or it could be, you know, the old idea of serialization is uh, someone who is, who is writing a long form piece and picking up week after week with it. But Substack allows you to do that. There's a lot of really good folks on Stub, Substack or Substack, as I keep wanting to say, uh, historically is is another one of my favorite Substacks. Uh, Yasha Levine has a, a a really good one right now, and of course Matt Taibbi's. Now, I'm not a huge. Uh, how do I want to say this? <laughs> I see some problems in what Taibbi's trying to do here. I also see what he intends to do. And I'm all for it. And I also see where he kind of got himself into some trouble. So I want to try to unpack a little bit of this because I think it's really important as we go forward and we start talking about defunding the police. Because at root, what his article is about is misreporting reality. Uh, I think that that is the thing that he's very passionate about. And he's one of the few reporters who is very passionate about the idea of truth and going after a truth in a way that um, is meaningful. And he points out in the article too, that we're at a time when uh, news and ideas are being misreported constantly uh, having to do with um, what I'm going to call, what I'm going to say are uh, power arrangements. Okay. So misreporting often follows along the lines of favoring those who are in power and disfavoring those who don't have power. Often the uh, the the powerful are the status quo. So we often hear that um, that uh, that there is a um, move to protect the status quo uh, from the barbarians at the door, as it were. Um, but you can't just look at a claim in the media or a claim that a reporter makes uh, and, and tell on its face whether it's um, misreporting or whether it's supporting a, a, a status quo center of power, 
these things don't announce themselves. So you have to be able to analyze what you're looking at. And you have to be able to kind of tease those, those uh, issues apart. This is what discourse is for, by the way. This is a kind of article, what, what Taibi has put out with this is, you know, what I call like a discourse article. He's not reporting on, like he hasn't, He's not like on the campaign trail reporting that this is what happened this week and so-and-so said this and someone else rebutted with this. It's not that kind of reporting. Um, it's not uh, like foreign affairs reporting where you go to a war zone and you're talking about battles that have just happened and uh, military strategies that were employed. Uh, and people who were killed. It's not that kind of thing either. It's discourse and, and it's, it's ideas reporting. And it's, it's a rather long piece and it's very interesting. It's got kind of like a symphony. It's got quite a few movements. And, uh, and in my opinion, he, he, started, he starts out from a place of, from a real honest place of wanting to defend a good friend of his, Li Fang, who came under fire last week on his reporting on a protest in East Oakland. Um, and he kind of generalized from there and applied some of the things that he was trying to uh, defend Li Fang about, and he tried to generalize those out to a lot of different other areas of reportage, and I think that's where he got into trouble. So let's let's get into it. Let's let's just start out. And you've got this like really wonderful Matt Taibbi uh, uh, pirouetting this this the style of writing that is um, you know, kind of Hunter Thompson-esque, and so, you know, it feels comfortable, it feel it, it makes you feel happy to read it, uh, so he's, uh, he's got this, uh, he opens up saying, sometimes it seems life can't get any worse in this country, already in terror of a pandemic, Americans have lately been bombarded with images of grotesque state-sponsored violence from the murder of George Floyd to countless scenes of police clubbing and brutalizing protesters. He then says, um, where is it? Uh, and says, but police violence and Trump's daily assaults on the presidential competence standard are only part of the disaster. On the other side of the political aisle, among self-described liberals, we're watching an intellectual revolution. It's so liberating to say, after years of tiptoeing around the fact, but the American left has lost its mind. It's becoming a cowardly mob of upper-class social media addicts, Twitter Robespierre's, who move from disciplined to discipline, torching reputations and jobs with breathtaking casualness. So that's 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 the money paragraph right there, the one with the uh, Twitter Robespierre's. Um, <clears throat> so from there, he lays out this this fracas this kerfuffle with Lee Fong. And what happened was uh, the former Think Progress writer, who is now at The Intercept, 
as a fantastic investigative reporter, as Matt Taibbi is um, aware of and reports in the team. And he gets on for pages and pages discussing this um, particular dust up. And what happened was Fong did a series of, of tweets where he was tweeting out clips of uh, man on the street interviews in East Oakland. This was June the 4th, so 10 days ago. So, you know, we're in the third week of global protests uh, for police, uh, against police brutality. And this, this was fairly early on. And this is right about the time that looting and uh, property violence, property crimes, were, were shocking everyone and were, were definitely something that we had not seen um, in years prior uh, up until that point. So there's a little bit of shock value, I think, for a man on the street. Like, uh, if you walk up to somebody like Lee Fong did and said, you know, uh, what do you think of the protests? i.e. the looting and the, the property crimes, then you're going to get a response that addresses looting and property crimes rather than the content, the protests themselves. And I think that that's, in my assessment, looking over uh, Lee's timeline, that's kind of what I see, is, is somebody who somehow wandered into a protest and found a handful of people who do not represent the kind of folks who actually go to a protest. Um, this is more man on the street, and you can tell that that he's at like a shopping center, a little plaza, and not actually in the um, fracas of a demonstration. So, so he's off-site of of, a, of the protests, and one of the guys that he that he talks to he is uh, mostly anonymous. He identifies himself as Maximilian Fr. And this young man, he looks to me to be uh, still a teenager, less than less than twenty, like maybe he's like nineteen or so, and. When asked about the the protests, <clears throat> what what Max wants to talk about instead is black on black violence. He wants to talk about, you know, why is it that when a police officer kills a black person, then it's national news, but when a black person kills another black person, then that's not national news. And Listen, if if I was Lee's editor, uh, if it were up to me, if this was my story and I had uh, obtained that clip from somebody, I wouldn't have used it, first of all, because it doesn't pertain to what's going on. And it is clearly one of the hot button things that is going to get you in trouble if you, you know, go to a protest and you give voice to the most conservative elements that are doing the counter protest uh, narrative. And this is the counter protest narrative. I have had to break up fights on my Facebook timeline from uh, normies 
you know, and, and Republicans who bring out this uh, black on black crime uh, uh, argument when it comes to Black Lives Matter. And it just seems to me that if you're a lefty writer and you're out there covering the protests, that it doesn't make a lot of sense to highlight that kind of comment like it's going to get you in trouble and it's like it surprises absolutely nobody that that would get you in trouble so what happened was uh lee fong puts this up and uh thousands of people reply and say look we're enough with this right-wing talking point thing and we've seen you do this in the past and please stop it this is not the place for it. And one of his coworkers at the Intercept uh, called him out specifically and uh, got quite a few likes on on their post and said um, that this is something that I've seen you do before and I wish you'd just stop. I'm just really tired of it. I'm paraphrasing because I can't find it right off the cuff in the piece. It's a really long piece. Um, and I got to keep uh, track of time, so I want to wrap this up before 7:30. Uh, so Maximilian and Lee, um, this is not a great example of uh, of misreporting the news. Now Matt wants to put this out there as as misreporting the news because he's a friend of Lee's. And, you know, Lee and, and, and Matt and, uh, and a lot, a lot, a dozen different reporters whom I love uh, definitely fall into this category of um, kind of adversarial journalists, which shouldn't be its own category, like adversarial and journalism are supposed to go together. You're not supposed to be the public relations officer for the people who you are covering. Your job is to go out there and get the news. But now in this case, that's not what happens here. And I understand that you would want to stand up for your friend and I understand you would want to protect the position of doing adversarial journalism, but guys, this ain't it. This is not it. And I'm going to tell you why the reason this isn't it. Um, this is a category mistake, okay? This is this is like if you went to a a Me Too rally and your your story that you file about uh, thousands of of people showing up in the context of the Me Too movement. If you filed a story that was about not all men, you know, that's the equivalent here. Um, now, Matt makes some pretty good uh, uh, observations about cancel culture and makes some pretty good observations about how uh, – what's what I'm looking for – how how radical it is to call someone out as a racist in this particular um, environment that we are in right now. Yeah, that is yelling fire in a crowded theater. Of course it is. Um, but it's also 
because that is yelling fire in a crowded theater, you want to make sure that you are not feeding that fire as the reporter, which is what I think happened here. Now, Matt then goes on to take this example, and he marries it up with the Tom Cotton uh, op-ed that was in the New York Times, and uses both of them as complete examples of the ways that uprisings in newsrooms, the Intercept in the case of Lee, and the New York Times in the case of this Tom Cotton op-ed, where Tom Cotton, you know, basically says, bring out the military and crush the rebellion. Um, and the, uh, it, it, the fallout from that was a young uh, op, uh, opinions page editor was let go. We don't know exactly why he was let go, but it was it was concurrent and associated with this particular um, dust up. But you know, people had quite a reaction to the Tom Cotton opinion piece, which is what you want from an opinion piece. You want people to respond to it, and you want them to be like, "Hey, you know, I agree with this or I don't agree with this." Now, the point has been made that Tom Cotton, if Tom Cotton, as as a, um, a member of Congress, has something to say, then he should be able to say it in whatever venue that he wants to say it, because as a lawmaker, we need to know uh, what these motherfuckers are thinking. And I get that. I get it. I really do. But I don't have uh, enough information about this particular editor to know if this was exactly a fair HR decision or not. And I don't think Matt does either. Um, and I don't think that these two articles go together, or these two instances go together to make the point that Matt wants to make. Now, Matt wants to make a point about misreporting the news. And he goes on to say that there are a lot of instances in recent history that are very destructive with regard to our national discourse and whether we are reporting the truth or talking about the truth. And one of the things that he brings up is, is uh, Russiagate and the Mueller report and um, uh, the, you, the hearings, the impeachment hearings on Ukraine, all of that. I think he's spot on, but I don't think we're talking about apples and apples here. Uh, with regard to Russiagate skeptics, like Aaron Maté, um, who is also one of one of these writers that I that, that I really appreciate, one of these reporters and thinkers who I think is um, doing very very important work. Um, I am down with being critical of Russiagate. It is proven to be. It's proven to be a flop over over all of this time, and the ways in which it has failed have not been reported, okay? So, like, recently, Sean Henry of CrowdStrike, uh, we had some unredactions of testimony where we found out that CrowdStrike didn't, has no idea if anybody exfiltrated data from the DNC servers. 
just doesn't know, just didn't know. And they went out there and they gave that information to, you know, what became, uh, you know, all of the intelligence services, like 14 or 17 of them or whatever, um, and said, you know, we're basically at war with Russia. This is the, the new Pearl Harbor because Russia somehow accessed the DNC servers and something, something having to do with the election. And then real quietly, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sean Henry of CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike is a private corporation that the Democrats, the DNC had uh, used to um, do their security with their servers and with their data. Um, just pretty much is like, no, we didn't know. We didn't know. We had no way of knowing if anyone exfiltrated that information, but we said we did. Yeah, we went ahead and said we did. Well, that is a pretty big walking back of a very big issue that had a lot of impact in the world, okay? And the reason why it got traction is because the players in Russiagate, we're talking the DNC, we're talking the, 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 the Mueller, the people on, on Mueller's team, we're talking the, both the House and Senate complete uh, a majority of Democrats in the House and then the, the uh, minority senators. All of that power was lined up to hold up that Russiagate narrative, okay? It had all of this status quo power holding it up, buttressing it up when there was no foundation for it to stand on. So what it stood on, instead of standing on truth, was it stood on power, all right? Now, what happened with Li Fang wasn't about power. He talked to a very young man on the street who happened to have a contrary, a, a, an opinion that is contrary to uh, what the national uh, uh, the national attitude is about these things. Uh, and he held this person up who has no standing, who, who is, and, and, and I mean that as he's not an official, he doesn't represent a group. He's, he, he, he's, he's not an important person in terms of what he represents. He's just a man in the street and held him up, put him on the spot as somebody who is supposed to, represent the movement or the counter movement. And that just wasn't fair. Um, so the one thing that I want to leave you guys with, and the one thing that I want that I think is super important here is that we don't make category mistakes when it comes to our power analysis. All right. When people try to get the truth out there and they're up against all of the power in the world, all right, that's what you call a righteous endeavor. When people are out there and they and and they're putting out a contrary opinion that is it goes against public sentiment and it's like one guy who just sort of offered this thing that that's that that's not equal. These are not apples and apples at all. Matayibi goes on to say that um, that there's a, a Marxists are are bullying uh, newsrooms everywhere. Uh, 
I think that you really need to check that. I think that that is way off. Uh, the, the couple of reporters who are gainfully employed who might be members of DSA, I can guarantee you they do not have tons of power in their newsrooms. What we do have now, though, is a lot of public sentiment that is starting to say, hey, look, we got a problem with the police and we got to deal with it. And it's really pretty simple. All right. And. We can have misreporting the police and we can have people having opinions that differ from from uh, public sentiment, from broad public sentiment or popular sentiment. We can have people who are uh, who dissent from that. That's fine. But they're dissenters. They're not representative of of the cause. Now, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to pick that back up at eight o'clock and show you how this all feeds in to this defunding the police uh, situation. And uh, I've got Stan Kirby coming up in just a second, and we'll be right back. And we're back. Steen Kirby, do we have you on the line? Yes, you do. Why, hello there. It's so good to hear your voice and talk to you on the show. Thank you. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what it is that you do with regard to polling and campaigns? Sure. So I'm a polling consultant in the southeast. I do work all over the country, but predominantly Georgia and Florida and some of the southeastern states. Uh, one of the things that I specialize in is public opinion polling, uh, whether that's for you know public consumption, like stuff that gets released to the news media and to the public, or internal polling for campaigns and organizations and interest groups to be able to uh, you know get a sense of public opinion and you know use that information and make it actionable to be able to. Um, you know, fulfill their initiatives and goals. So I wanted to I wanted to save this question for later on, but I'm just gonna go ahead and flip this. So we'll we'll come back to the uh Trump thing. But what you just said about uh using public opinion polling to um to enhance campaigns. I think that one of the things that I've learned from working with you is that uh, that polls and public opinion polling can really inform uh, the way a campaign runs in a way that makes it more efficient and more effective. So, so like, can you give us an example of one of the ways that public opinion polling makes uh, campaigns a little bit more efficient and effective? Sure. Um, I, mean, I would I would definitely say that you know part of 
or the research that we have, the knowledge or common sense shows us that the people that work on teams, uh, especially on the Democratic side, you know, if you're hiring a campaign staff or an advisory team, you're typically pulling very plugged into the news, uh, typically we're more well-educated um, and often, you know, in a bit of a bubble. And the problem is if you're running a race where you have to appeal to uh, in every in a particular district or community, you, if you don't have people on your team that can really tap the pulse of that, then you have to find an alternative way to do it. Of course, one of the easiest ways to get a large-scale picture of that is opinion polling. So, um, you know, a lot of campaigns we saw at the level of a lot of campaigns that really were trying to play to sort of an activist base or an activist audience. And, you know, they would get a lot of retweets on Twitter and a lot of Facebook likes and stuff. But then when the votes were actually in, you know, they didn't perform as well or they were just performing so poorly in opinion polls they had to drop out before votes were even cast. So it's just very important, you know, now more than ever that we get information that allows campaigns to really get an idea of what does the everyday voter in their community think rather than just what does their campaign staff think or what does their friends and family think, because that's often not representative of a larger community. And such a good point, because, you know, I think that we we all have a, a, a we all have these opinions full uh, formed of of polling, and I think a lot of people are uh, over the years, uh, especially since since the '90s and may, maybe even before since Reagan. I think that that there's a, a sensibility that public opinion polling drives too much of what candidates and politicians actually do in terms of how they put out their policy. And I have never seen that in my work. Instead, what I see is what you just described, which is uh, people getting a better understanding of, of what's, what sentiment really is in their district and adjusting in response to that and so like like let's take an example let's say let's say that um public opinion is uh very favorable for um uh for funding a a, a school uh improvements so uh, a candidate might go into a race with uh, with their family and their friends and the um, their their activists or their volunteers saying, oh, you don't want to talk about you don't want to talk about raising taxes because uh, everybody knows that that is something that is a third rail. Um, but if they had had that public opinion polling, maybe they would know that the sentiment in their community and in their district was very much in favor of improving schools. Right. It it can empower people to be more aggressive in their vision. If, if there's a direction that they want to go in and they're uncertain the community is with them, it can empower them to do that. Or in the inverse, you know, even if there's things that they deeply hold as values or they have an agenda for, 
just because you're you know you're losing in the polls with that agenda doesn't mean you can't change public opinion. I think a lot of people look at polls and say, okay, this is what it says. If you know that's it, that's the end all be all. And you know that's not true because by and large on most issues, a lot of times people are not even used to being asked the question. Um, mm-hmm. I mean I think people are being used to ask questions like, who are you voting for for president? But how often does anybody ever ask the question? Do you want to put put more money into, like you said, the local school? Um, you know, these are not questions that typically get asked, or they get asked in such a fleeting manner that people have not had the time to really form an opinion. Case in point, I have a recent um, discussion about how to handle reforming law enforcement. You know, people being asked polls for the first time in ten years or five years or whatever that you know, time period is. And they haven't really even had time to form an opinion. So if you're an organization or you're a person that really wants to see certain police reforms, for example, don't look at the polls and say, oh, we're losing. Oh, well, time to go home. Look at it and say, okay, this is where things are today. How do we move the needle with the public? Because you know, even if the activists are with us, perhaps the public is not quite there yet. Yeah, an example of this that I like to share is um, uh, on the issue of earned sick time, so paid sick leave, uh, as a um, ballot initiative that was on the local level here in Central Florida. It was a a countywide measure a few years ago. The public opinion polling showed that uh, talking about public health the public health ramifications of, of paid sick leave, uh, it was pulling slightly less than uh, matters of family, such as need, wanting to ask off for a sick child, that type of thing. So it was slightly behind, uh, but it wasn't terribly behind. And uh, right now with the pandemic, we're seeing exactly how much people are very, very aware of of issues of public health, but it took a while, you know, it it took a little bit of education. Of course, we got the education in the worst way possible. Absolutely. And and that's the thing, I mean, on on most issues, you can't simply poll in in a vacuum, I like to call it, and just assume that people's opinions can't change because we've seen on a number of issues how things have changed even so rapidly um, within you know, five or ten years. Um, you know, it seems like sort of certain social attitudes and things change a lot, you know, very quickly. Right, and uh, and I think you make a good point a second ago when you said, you know, when when a public opinion poll comes back and it says, you know, you've got 65% that are in favor of this and 74% uh, are, are in favor of, of a, uh, let's say wording the, uh, the issue a separate way. That's like a soft poll. Um, do you like the wording yeah. of the first one or the second one? Um, after it's the work that you do in a campaign 
that is changing people's opinions and is moving people. Uh, you're supposed to be educating people and you're supposed to be moving them on the issues uh, and you're supposed to be connecting with them. So uh, one of the things that I like to see campaigns do is uh, start out with a baseline to do some baseline public opinion polling. And then uh, right before your vote by mails drop, you know, maybe do it again so that you can see if there's been any movement on, a, on any kind of issues. Right. right. Because a lot of, a lot of campaigns, you know, they're, they're married to a particular strategy. I mean, there's, there's people who believe in mail and people that believe in door knocking, you know, others would argue for TV or digital and things like that. But ultimately, if you're not checking yourself and checking your own biases to see, you know, okay, we did a piece of mail. How did that change people's opinion of the race? And, you know, certainly if you're a person with enough money to be able to operate a campaign on a certain scale, don't just blindly say, okay, we're going to do six mailers and even check and see how the public is perceiving that. <laughs> because they might have gotten six mailers in their opinion that you only got one. But you never know until the polls are closed and it's too late to do anything about it. Right. Right. Yeah. And and that's something, too, that I think that, that candidates need to be aware of is one of the things that we always do on on the polls is, is we talk about is we ask about uh, where have you seen our materials? What what comes to mind? Was it a television ad? Was it a direct mail piece? Was it digital? And so you can get really good feedback on the effectiveness of your communications efforts, your marketing efforts. By uh, by including those those questions, which are usually included anyway. Tell me a little bit about. Tell me a little bit about. Okay, so in 2016 and 2018, we had uh, there was a little bit of chatter in Florida about bad polling. That in 2016 and in 2018, and I think in 2018, what we're talking about is the governor's race uh, with uh, Andrew Gillum. And uh, I think it was just generally in 2016. But Florida seemed to be relying on, and a lot of the consultant class and the party, the Democratic Party, were relying on polls that it turned out once we had election day, it turned out that the polls were bad. Um, and so you and so you hear people just talk about bad polls. So help help the audience understand a little bit about what makes uh, when people talk about bad polls. What are we talking about other than it, it, it didn't just predict like what makes a poll bad? Assuming that a poll is being, is being done in good faith, meaning that it's not inherently biased out of the gate and it's being done in, in you know, using professional methods, meaning. If your poll was done by asking 100 people on your Facebook page what they think, that's not a you know it's not a scientifically relevant poll. If your poll is being you know funded and pushed by a particular interest group, then more than likely you know it's gonna it's gonna induce bias. Uh, perhaps the vendor just the client happy or the client is putting certain you know weighting or pressure on things to try to get the result they want. But so that's one form of bad polling is that it just starts bad and doesn't get any better. Mm -hmm. uh, the second more common form is when 
do a poll, but you do not weight that poll properly to the electorate. So in Florida, for example, I'm sure as we all know, the way that people vote is often their level of education, their level of income, their gender, their race, and their age. So every pollster, even you know, the best ones, are going to have to make an educated assumption based on the data that they have for past elections and then kind of what the state looks like you know, at the, at the moving forward for the future election that they're polling to say this is going to be the makeup of the electorate. But, of course, the campaign is going to be pushing to try to get their voters to come out and vote. So, you know, what happens in Florida sometimes is if, for example, older folks and folks without a college degree who are particularly or white come out and vote, but Republicans versus on the Democratic side, they tend to be trying to push out young people like on college campuses, uh, people of color, particularly the black community. And then, you know, some groups are harder to poll. So, for example, in Florida, you have a, a pretty decent number of people that speak Spanish as their first language or their second language. So if your polls are entirely done in English, you know, you may have a Hispanic sample that's they're Hispanic, but if they're English-speaking Hispanic, you might be entirely missing folks who, you know, are perhaps more, uh, you know, conversational Spanish over English. They're still voting. So it, a lot of it is just waiting, and you have to make sure that what you're waiting is plausible. And even then, it may not entirely be true because sometimes, you know, turnout is, is different than people expect. But by and large, you can get, you know, within three to five points as long as you're waiting appropriately. And, you know, you're not favoring groups that might be more likely to answer the poll but don't represent the electorate, which is typically people that are college-educated and people that are older are going to be more likely to respond to a poll than, for example, someone who's a young person of color. They're just right. The reach when you try to poll them, meaning that there's going to be fewer of them, which is going to make errors. You're more likely to get errors. Mm-hmm. And – I think a lot of people are familiar in uh in years past we've talked a lot about the um uh that people are moving to cell phones. You know, we don't all have landlines and there's been a bit of a lag in the availability of uh of cell phone numbers uh for uh, uh political campaigns and even when you do have access to cell phones uh, a lot of people are, I know that I do this, I'm, I'm a lot more meticulous in my screening in my of calls. Screening of calls. Yep. That was weird. <laughs> I'm getting some weird feedback. Um, but uh, so, so we're, we're talking about bad polls and that kind of leads into this, this, kerfuffle with um, Trump and CNN. So Donald Trump has demanded, he's done a cease and desist letter for CNN to retract a poll that um, that he says was a uh, quote phony and a stunt and was, and that, uh, and that it was trying to stifle momentum and enthusiasm for the president and present a false view generally of the actual support across America for the president. And uh, from what you've said, I can imagine, well, uh, 
you know, maybe what he wants to say is that he feels like uh, CNN was operating in bad faith. But uh, at this point, at this point in the race, what are we even talking about with with presidential polls? Like uh, right now, we're seeing a trend with with Biden leading uh, Trump, but how how accurate and how how uh, fungible are the numbers at this point? So Trump is freaking out and saying. Uh, um, this was a bad poll and, and doing a, a, a C&D letter um, telling him to stop because he thinks it's going to hurt his momentum. I have to wonder, like, really? I mean, we're, we're, we're months away from, from voting and it doesn't even seem like, it seems like these things turn on debates, they turn on the conventions, they turn on a lot that happens much closer to election day. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that whole dust up? Uh, I mean, there's there's two comments. I would say, first of all, the, this year's presidential race in the general election has been remarkably stable. Um, historically, they polls tend to fluctuate more, but this one's been very stable so far, largely because opinions on Trump are so, I think, solidified that you have a certain, it's about 40% of people that they just like him and they're voting for him, and that's that's really all there is to it. It's very hard to move their opinion. And then there's about, you know, 46% of people who come and are not voting for him, and their opinion is not going to move. So it's just that remaining sort of percentage that's still into play for, and that's why Biden has typically been up behind six to seven points nationally, which is kind of like what happened in 2018. I think it was something like a seven or eight point generic ballot for the Democrats over the Republicans, which is how they won the the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, in terms of that particular CNN poll, you know, in any campaign, whether it's Trump or somebody running it for local office, the best way to, quote unquote, refute a poll is, is release your own and show, and show a different a different reality. If the Trump campaign was truly, you know, believing that they were getting, you know, publicly released polls that were poorly done or were done with, without, you know, without good intentions, certainly he's got millions upon millions of dollars. He can release his own numbers and show why he believes he's in a better position than these other polls show. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to follow a suit or send a letter. And, you know, most of the reporting that I've seen says that his internal polls are still not good for him either. <laughs> so this mm-hmm. is a very common tactic. We, we just had a, a U.S. Senate primary in Georgia where one of the candidates was claiming that the polls that had been done in their race uh, were too favorable towards one particular candidate and that their voters were not being polled appropriately. Well, it turned out that the polls were right, <laughs> and if anything, that candidate did worse than even the polls side. So we've seen this story time and time again in both parties where a candidate says, oh, the only poll that matters is on election day, and it's really just a form of denial. It's not It's not based on anything solid because if they have a legitimate beef, they want to produce their own numbers and say, no, these are the numbers that we have, and they're better or they're more accurate. So the, the- – 
That is a really good point. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of the bookend for me for, you know, going into polling with a little bit of bad, a uh, little bit of bad faith where you're polling to try and get the result that you want, um, which doesn't help anybody. If you're going to go to the effort of polling, you want, you ought to want to know the truth. Um, I want to switch gears and uh, in the last few minutes talk a little bit about some of the races that have been won and some of the ones that are coming up. Uh, Paula Jean, uh, Paula Jean, Paula Dean, now I'm the uh, Senate candidate in West Virginia, won her primary. So she'll uh, proceed on to the general. And then we've got the Kentucky Senate primary this uh, coming up with uh, Booker giving quite a, uh, a performance against Amy McGrath. Is there, do you have any feel for that race and how it's shaping up? It, from what I've seen, there was an internal, it was a relatively small sample, but there was an internal poll released uh, yesterday by the Booker campaign that had them down. I want to say it was nine points. It was like between eight and ten. I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was an eight or nine point lead for McGrath. And then, of course, he was in a very comfortable second. And then there was a third candidate that was like at five or six percent. That's you know third wheel. Um, he's definitely surged. I mean, you can just see in terms of his fundraising and just his visibility, even the, the Google search data that he's definitely he's on the upswing. But I think the challenge has been for Kentucky and a lot of the other states is a lot of the voting is, do, is be taking place by mail. So mm-hmm. even if by election day, let's say he's able to catch up with her, a lot of people would have already voted. And you may have some people that have you know, um, regrets because perhaps they marked a ballot for her, didn't know about him or didn't know enough about him at the time, and then you know, two or three weeks later decided, well, he's actually a better candidate. I'd rather vote for him. But have no real mechanism to do that. So I would I would have to think she still has an advantage. I mean, she still has run. She didn't run the entire state, but she ran for a house district, which is a pretty, you know, sizable part of the state. And of course, she just has so much money and so much free media that you know I, I haven't obviously done the math, but I'm sure she's had multiple million dollars worth of even just media from MSNBC and some of these progressive outlets on top of what she's paid to advertise. And, you know, he's just now, I think, starting to draw attention. So I think he's done a really good job to even be in this position, but it would be very difficult to see him probably overtake her, not to mention that, you know, you also have the aspect of Kentucky as a very white state and she's white and he's not. And mm-hmm. also the gender gap, because typically in democratic primaries, women outvote men and there's two men on the ballot and one woman. So, hmm. you know, there's no guarantees, but I would still think, you know, she's in she's in a better position in terms of winning the primary, but the fact that we're even talking about the primary is obviously a sign that he's done a really good job to even, you know, to even make this into a conversation that we're having. Mhm. Well, and Kentucky actually being on the map in terms of, you know, 
an insurgent campaign and competitive democratic races. I think all of that is very interesting and it's not something I would have predicted, you know, a couple cycles ago, like, like presidential cycles ago. It's really cool seeing a, uh, a state like Kentucky, a rural state. I spent 20 years in Tennessee and, and I've got uh, a love for that part of the country. Uh, and, and I just love that they're, raising their profile generally uh last question what do you know do you have any races that you're looking at that uh progressives have a a a good chance are you looking at any uh anything in particular um what's on your radar there's a number of primaries upcoming in new york particularly new york city area um i'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with elliot engel uh, who's a long-time kind of establishment white Democrat running against a young black progressive named Jamal Bowman. Um, a lot of the progressive organizations have thrown behind Bowman. He even got like the New York Times and stuff, which is you know, traditionally a little bit more establishment uh, because Engel doesn't live in the district, and he's made a number of clubs. Uh, the most, probably the most damning one was he was on a, a microphone, and he said, you know, I wouldn't even be at this Black Lives Matter protest if I didn't have an election. And that really caused, you know, a lot of people to sort of shift their support. Um, Chuck Schumer, who's pretty, you know, establishment, as you know, basically withdrew his endorsement of Engel and said, I'm not making an endorsement at all, uh, and was removed from Engel's website. So there's definitely some movement in that race. Um, there's another primary in that New York City area where there's a couple of progressive candidates. One is Richie Torres, and the other is uh, Samelis uh, Lopez. Uh, a lot of the progressive groups have endorsed Torres, and then I think um, Ocasio-Cortez and some of the more Bernie Sanders-type DSA people have endorsed Lopez. And they're both trying to beat this uh, city councilman named Ruben Diaz here, who's very conservative. Um, he's a He's a Democrat in the primary, but he holds a very conservative, um, almost quasi-Trump political views on a number of issues. So there's a couple of races there. Um, obviously, much like the McGrath primary, I think some people are looking at how John Hickenlooper does in his primary against Andrew Romanoff. Uh, you know, Hickenlooper is obviously the more establishment uh, you know, party-back candidate, and then Romanoff has been running more to his left. Um, Hickenlooper should win, and it's more of a margin check to see, you know, how many, how many people sort of buck the trend and go with Romanoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are, you know, a few things on my radar in the immediate. All right. Well, Stan, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, it, it's it's always good to check in on on a, on public opinion polling just generally, but I mean, to me. You're one of the people who just uh, uh, lays it out there in a way that is um, easy to understand. I mean, it just uh, like you kind of what's the word I'm looking for? You demystify the process in a way that is is really really cool. So thank you so much, Steen, and we will uh, check back in with you as the uh, campaigns continue. Wonderful, thank you. All righty.
Okay, folks, we're going to take a little break, and I'm going to come right back, and we're going to continue this discussion of defunding the police. Super important stuff. What it is, what it isn't, and I'll be right back. Oh, girl went back to Napoli because she missed the scenery. The native dances and the charming songs But wait a minute Something's wrong Calabrese do the mambo like a crazy with a hey, mambo. Don't want a tarantella, hey, mambo. No more mozzarella, hey, mambo. Mambo Italiano, try an enchilada with the fish bacala and an You get a happy in the feet, so when you mumbo, it's Italiano. Shake a baby, shake it, cause I love it when you take a Kirby, if you are, uh, y'all, if you're uh, thinking about running for an office, if you're thinking about doing a campaign, if you work on a campaign, Steen Kirby is just, he is, he's the bee's knees. He's fantastic to work with and um, is, uh, uh, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but makes makes all of these services um, accessible for smaller and progressive candidates. Uh, uh, he's he's very smart about the way he does his work, and that means that you don't have to pay twenty thousand dollars for a poll. Like that's which is what you might expect from a, a PPP or you know a big outfit, one of the big outfits. Uh, okay, so we spent a little bit of time dancing around this whole Matt Taibbi piece, and I want to use some of what we talked about there and move into a discussion of defunding the police. Now, Janine Moloff is going to come on at 8.30 here in just about 22 minutes, 23 minutes, and she's going to do the deep dive, but I just want to set I just want to set the table a little bit. So we talked about we talked about misreporting the news, and we talked about a little bit about power, you know. And uh, you know, 
I set the table. I, I went to great lengths to set the table on on the uh, on the Taibi piece, and um, I don't want the power piece of this to get lost because to me, um, this is this is what's important, and this is what is really driving news, and this is what is really driving policy. We know this. We know this. It's power. It's always been power. It's uh, hegemony. It's uh, who's got the biggest stick? Who's got the better carrot? Um, uh, one of the things, one of the things here towards the end of the article, there, uh, Matt Taibbi's article is uh, we're talking about, he's talking about on CNN, Minneapolis City Police. Uh, City Council President Lisa Bender uh, was asked a hypothetical question about a future without police. Uh, so, so Taibbi goes into this defunding thing in in the piece, and so, you know, this is this is really instructive. So, listen up. Um, quote. What if in the middle of the night, my house is broken into? Who do I call? Unquote. When Bender, who was white, answered, she said, uh, quote, I know that comes from a place of privilege. Um, questions pop to mind. Uh, when she was answering that question, and it was about defunding the police, what she was saying is that the privilege is uh, – she can call the police and they can show up at her house and she doesn't have to be afraid of being shot, you know, as a, as a white woman of means and who, is, who has power, who is a city council person. And that people who do not have that, the, the benefit of those demographics, when they call the police, you don't know what's going to happen. So you don't call the police. That's what you do. You don't. You don't do it. Um, So this this idea that the police exist as as a, to protect the uh, to protect and serve or to protect the common good or the commonwealth or whatever it is uh, already it's inherent in the discussion that we're having right now that it's an issue of privilege. Now Taini sets this up as as a straw man. And, and and this is where this is where I was I was really kind of getting hip to the to the problems in this in this piece uh, because um, she says uh, you know she says it comes from a, a a place of privilege and the idea of defunding the police is is one that what she was saying was we have to work against this indoctrination and everything that I've read on defunding the police all mentions this indoctrination, you know, that, that we are, um, we grow up thinking that cops are the good guys. Like there's, well, you play cops and robbers, you know, and you're supposed to root for the good guys and blah, 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 blah. And uh, what we have right now is we have a system where, uh, the ideologies that we've inherited, um, the indoctrination that we inherited, and the orthodoxies do not align with reality. Um, this played out quite a bit in, when I was in Tennessee. So uh, uh, there, there was a spate of 
um, no-knock warrants where where the police came in and just you know started shooting and it was the wrong house and the family was freaked out and they ended up killing a dog you know like there was this, just one right after another of uh, police in Tennessee shooting people's pets and um, you know they do that for a reason they do that to intimidate the family and to terrorize the family and to make them feel helpless. You know, a, a family pet is a member of the family. And what they're doing is they're coming in and they're saying that, that I have the authority and I have the impunity to come and kill a member of your family and you can't do anything about it. You know, just come at me, bro. You know, like, like that's what that's about. Um, when someone says that, that they come from a place of privilege and that they might be able to call the police and expect them to not kill them or not kill their dog or not, you know, terrorize the neighborhood. Yeah, that's, that's just stating the obvious. But now what he does is, is he goes through and, and, and he talks about how he wants to make this into like, uh, what he calls a weird cult behavior that um, that in that in his opinion that there's um, too much genuflecting and he gives some bad examples uh, uh, just just some just silly silly things where uh, and I haven't seen this in the news I don't know if this is true or not but uh, white police in Cary, North Carolina knelt and washed the feet of black pastors I don't know I don't know about that um, but what I do know is that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer along with a lot of other uh, congressional democratic leaders dressed in, in African kente cloth scarves and knelt knelt for a photoshop <laughs> to show their, to perform their uh, adherence or their alignment with, with Black Lives Matter protests. And let me tell you right now, we are sick and tired of that performative bullshit. And what was going on with the, with the Minneapolis city council person, that was not performative bullshit. She was saying, look, I know that I've got privilege. You know, she wasn't putting on a kente cloth and washing people's feet. And, you, you know, so, yeah, what I'm saying, apples, apples and oranges, you know, let's let's try to, you know, reestablish some order here. Um, it's it's a uh, it, it, it completely that that photo op with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer with the kente cloth. It's just um, it's beyond embarrassing. And it's it's. It's pandering, and that's it's 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 infuriating. It's patronizing. Don't do it. Just stop. Don't. Um, uh, my favorite moment of that, by the way, was that Nancy got down and she couldn't get up. Uh, I'm the same way. I have bad knees at this point. I'm only 54, and you know, if I was to kneel down like that, I would need someone to help me get up too. Uh, you know, it it happens, but. Uh, you, you know, maybe if they thought about it just for a few minutes and maybe if there wasn't group think going on within their particular uh, circles, maybe they wouldn't have done that. You know, maybe, you know, there wouldn't have been that embarrassing moment where Nancy Pelosi had to have someone come rescue her from, from her kneeling position. 
Um, Tybee goes on, there is a symbolism here that goes beyond frustration with police or even with racism. These are orgiastic, quasi-religious, and most of all, deeply weird scenes, and the press is too paralyzed to wonder at it. In a business where the first job requirement was once the willingness to ask tough questions, we've become afraid to ask obvious ones. yourself as dear listener, dear listener, ask yourself, where are we having problems asking the right questions? Is it of power or is it of the powerless? All right. Because I don't see us having any trouble uh, questioning what is going on with uh, people who don't have power. Everybody's got, everybody's got an opinion about that. Everybody's got an opinion about what is the right way to uh, conduct a protest and what is the, 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 the right people to invite to a protest. And, you know, the, the, you know, we don't like it when, when there's property damage and we don't like it when, when, when stores are set on fire. Okay, nobody does. As a matter of fact, nobody likes that. So, you know, let's try to do something that will uh, create the conditions where that doesn't happen. And that's that's kind of that's a uh, kind of what's what's uh, going on here. Uh, Taimi seems to have a a tone complaint about the about what protesters are demanding that um, that talking about privilege and talking about uh, uh, wanting to defund the police uh, and uh, uh, demanding that reporters like Lee Fang uh, adhere to a kind of narrative that 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 is uh, that that's not cool. And I know it's uncomfortable, but what's going on there, this is like vote shaming. What's going on there is that you've got public opinion that's pushing that. This isn't one or two people. You know, the, the, the backlash to Lee's reporting on the 4th of June, it was legion. It was massive. It was thousands of replies and thousands of people. And, you know, what you saw there is, is the, is, is a backlash of public opinion. So like vote shaming, you can't, you can't just shame people. And, and this is by the way, shame shaming uh, is, is what Tybee's doing, you know, quit shaming people with shame um, for uh, saying really stupid things around uh, delicate issues. Uh, I think that adults all should know that when you say really stupid things around delicate issues, you're going to get some blowback. And to me, it's the definition of pissing in the wind to say, hey, public opinion, stop being the way that you are. You know, public opinion is a fact of life, like like as 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 a member of the discourse, as, as somebody who's trying to work within the discourse. You got to kind of take that as your given. You take that as your premise and you work your thoughts and you work your pieces around what the public is telling you 
because you're not going to change everyone's freaking mind uh, with with a with an editorial. Tom Cotton didn't change anybody's mind with the editorial. Uh, Lee Fang didn't change anybody's minds with his uh, videos and his tweets. You know, all we're doing is either uh, uh, brushing up against a discourse, participating in a discourse, or eschewing a discourse. You know, you've only got a few moves on this dance floor. Um, The one move that we all have to remember is that at the bottom of all of this is power. And so when Taibi says that um, uh, when a media person pounces on a provocative response to dig out its meaning, um, but an increasingly long list of words and topics are deemed too dangerous to, to discuss, then that's difficult for the reporter. That creates a, a, an untenable situation for a reporter. Well, I say, I say, why are these things too difficult to discuss? Is it because there is a tidal wave of public opinion? Or is it because there are a few people in power who are enforcing a status quo? So, you know, you you go on, you talk about Robert Mueller, you talk about James Comey's firing, uh, the Kavanaugh's uh, nomination, uh, the... uh, uh, those are all good examples of uh, the status quo asserting itself. Those are, you know, really, really powerful people, really, really powerful media institutions, uh, the leaders of, of, of Congress. They're all enforcing those power relations, and that's why that is the way it is. Then he goes on to say that uh, you also can't talk about whistleblowers um, or uh, lockdown violators, you know, like the protesters who were uh, wanting to end lockdown, um, or the sudden reversal on lockdown, as you saw with the Black Lives Matter protests when everybody is out in the street protesting. Those, I would like to submit to you that those categories do not have power. You know, when it's uh, protesters going out to uh, to uh, say, hey, Black Lives Matter, you know, um, in case you hadn't noticed, uh, that's premised on the fact that that group does not have power. And white people and 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 you know, the, the uh, people of all backgrounds join in solidarity uh, to, in, in order to change the narrative there, in order to change public opinion. That is what that is about. That is why people are doing it, okay? Um, whistleblowers like... Uh, um, oh, what's his name? <laughs> the guy, the guy with the intercept, and he had all of the information from um, the military contractor. Anyway, the big whistleblower guy. And my middle-aged brain just completely lost his name. Anyway, whistleblowers, by and large, do not have power. Whistleblowers are imperiled. Whistleblowers are trying to get a story out uh, against the wishes of the giant 
edifices of power, okay? So when they, when whistleblower narratives run into a brick wall or run into trouble in the media, it's, um, it's, it's because, it's because of a lack of power. All right. So examine whether or not the, the issue has to do with does, does the, um, is the misreporting happening because someone at power, someone in power is being inconvenienced or is the misreporting happening because um, not Assange, the other guy, um, or is the misreporting happening because uh, the status quo demands it? Okay. At the end of all of this, um, Tybee says, there were no press calls for self-audits after these episodes, just as there won't be a few weeks from now if COVID-19 cases spikes again, or a few months from now if Donald Trump wins re-election successfully painting the Democrats as supporters of violent protest who want to abolish police. Yeah. So we finally get we finally get to the nugget of this, and that is that 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 is warning us and saying that he believes that it is Edward Snowden. Thank you. That is who I was trying to think of, Edward Snowden. Um, God, Jesus. Uh, this is a valid. This is absolutely a valid uh, 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 issue to bring up. He buried the lead. This is 15 pages in. This could have been the very top top level. He's asking the question: um, If Donald Trump wins re-election, successfully painting the Democrats as supporters of violent protests who want to abolish police, then what do we do? Well, so so he, here's the thing: Matt Taibbi and I totally agree with him on this, and Aaron Maté and all of these guys that I super love. Uh, made the same argument about Russiagate. <laughs> you know, like, you weren't supposed to talk about your skepticism or your critique about Russiagate. You weren't supposed to do that because, oh, my God, that could help Trump. And so now here's Matt Taibbi doing the same thing. He's saying, oh, my God, don't support uh, defunding police. Don't support uh, the protests, which can be uh, – uh, uh, characterized as violent, um, because then that will benefit Trump in uh, in the 2020 elections. Now, this is totally backwards. You know, right now we are having a conversation about defunding the police, and I've got Janine Moloff here waiting for me on the line. And it's very important that we have this, and it's very important that we uh, uh, address these issues. And you know, I'm sorry that there's an inconvenient election get fixing to happen. But you know what? The Democrats could actually uh, come out of hiding and do something with their messaging other than putting on a bunch of Kinsey claws and requiring help uh, once they're kneeling down and can't get up. Yeah. 
And like I've fallen, the the Democratic Party has fallen and they can't get up essentially. Um, But but they've done so in racially insensitive clothing, I suppose. It's not sensitive. It's not. It's just performative bullshit. Anyway, uh, I'm gonna leave it there. I'm a little bit frustrated with everybody right now. I'm gonna bring Janine on and see if she's as frustrated as I am. I think she's gonna be a a breath of fresh air though. Hey, Janine. Hey, Brooke. Well, I join you. I'm frustrated, too, and I'm just going to talk about the whole idea of defunding the police, and it's really, this movement is about, they call it the abolition movement. It's about defunding, divesting the money, and reinvesting in other social needs. So I'm just going to start right now. In the past few weeks, the nation and the world has witnessed a popular uprising against police brutality in the USA tragically inspired by the extrajudicial murder, police murder of George Floyd. There have been so many needless police murders in the U.S. that a new type of abolition movement has surged to the public awareness, namely the movement to, quote, defund the police. As a result of this powerful demand, many traditional politicians and media figures from both the GOP and the Democrats at the DNC have feverishly worked to discredit this idea. Political figures, uh, including civil rights icons like Congressman Clyburn, uh, political figures from civil rights icons like Congressman Clyburn to the disgraced present occupants of the Oval Office have condemned the notion of defunding the police. Those who cite this consideration use the very dishonest argument that such action would result in chaos and dangerous streets. They skillfully theory into a ludicrous notion that would result that such defunding would result in a total surrender of public order to roving gangs wielding military-grade weapons without realizing we already lived that daily situation. It's called the police. The abolition movement is along a continuum of considerations, like most movements, but the main components are defund slash divest from present police forces and private security companies that comprise what has been called the prison industrial complex. Also, reinvest in communities by fairly funding public schools, public health services, et cetera, and creating a functional system of public transparency and accountability for the new community-based police force. Additionally, these groups seem to want to replace our present dysfunctional system with the dual concepts of restorative justice and transformative justice. And this is the abolition community I'm talking about. Last week I spoke about the issue of qualified immunity and how it unjustly protects police from civil suits. But starting this week, I'm gonna first speak about the very legitimate movement to defund the present policing model and reinvest in our communities along multiple venues. I'll leave the above mentioned dishonest argument to corporate media sources. So first, let's quickly look at the legal contrivances which protect abuse of police. And namely, this starts with two SCOTUS or Supreme Court decisions regarding the use of police force, which led us up to this moment. The problem, and this was an article in Vox written by German Lopez in 2018, and it basically deals with when police use deadly or near-deadly force and how they get away with it. And it's titled, Police Can Use Deadly Force as They Merely Perceive a Threat. So the two Supreme Court of SCOTUS cases that allow cops to get out of jail free card when they use deadly or near deadly force, to put it bluntly, um, are the following, Tennessee v. Gardner and Graham v. Connor. 
in these cases, all the police have to uh, claim is that they believe they're in mortal danger. There's no proof required beyond this low standard of belief. And both these decisions came during the 1980s. And this set up a framework for basically allowing police to use deadly force or near deadly force with impunity. And they quoted, this writer quoted David Klinger, who was in 2018 a University of Missouri St. Louis professor. Uh, and he said, he studies use of force, and he said, quote, constitutionally, police officers are allowed to shoot under two circumstances. The first circumstance is to protect their life or the life of another innocent party. What happens, uh, what departments call the defense of life standard. The second circumstance is to prevent a suspect from escaping, but only if the officer has probable cause to think the suspect poses a dangerous threat to others, end quote. So the first one I'm going to talk about really quickly is Tennessee v. Garner. And this is fleeing an alleged crime scene. And this case involved a pair of police officers. They shot a 15-year-old kid who was basically running from a burglary. The kid had stolen $10 and a purse from a house. The, court, the Supreme Court ruled that cops couldn't shoot every felon who tried to escape. But to quote Professor Klinger from UNCLE, quote, they basically say the job of a cop is to protect people from violence. And if you've got a violent person who's fleeing, you can shoot them to stop their flight, end quote. Now, the truth about both these faulty standards, Tennessee v. Garner and Graham v. Connor, uh, is that it doesn't matter, once again, if there's an actual threat to the police officer's life. It only centers on whether or not the officer basically, according to quote, objective, objective reasonable belief, quote, that there is a threat. Now, the belief standard that came out of Graham v. Connor is even worse. It allows police to use deadly force. And this was a civil lawsuit uh, brought by a man. He did survive the encounter, but he had been treated very roughly. His face was shoved into the hood of a car. They broke his foot. And this was while this man was suffering a diabetic attack. And the court didn't rule whether the officer's treatment was justified. Uh, but they said that officers could justify their violent contact based uh, they said that the officers could not justify their conduct based on whether their intentions were, you know, considered good. The court said that the officers had to demonstrate that those actions were, quote, objectively reasonable, whatever that means, when considering the circumstance and then compared with what other police officers might do. So basically it's an incredibly low standard. Bottom line is officers can murder with impunity. All they have to claim is, especially because of the Graham case, is that they felt or believed that their lives were in mortal danger. No proof required. And since the 80s, we've had a resurgence of police violence that's continued unabated. It's been six years since the massive protests following the Michael Brown police murder and millions have been spent on so-called police training, which has been largely useless. The defund, divest, and abolition movement offers something new. Face it, American policing originally derived from slave patrols, as we've talked before. Then it morphed into violent immigrant and union suppression, like the Pinkertons, to continued violence against communities of color. No matter what television sponsors say, policing in the U.S. is not about protecting and serving the majority. It's about protecting and serving the oligarchy, the moneyed classes, while diverting 
desperately needed money from our public schools, public health services, job programs, and other vital issues through the prison, that, that, and then goes through the prison industrial complex. Now we hear vapid calls again to improve police training, which means more money thrown at the same prison industrial complex that is not, and that's not the solution, but the abolition movement might be. We have to stop diverting money from our schools, from public health, from other social services to fund these useless police programs. Now, one of the most prominent abolitionists fighting against this prison industrial complex is Professor Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And she was recently interviewed for The Intercept by, I'm going to try and pronounce it, Shanjere Kumanyika, who is also an assistant professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers. And so Kumanyika had this two-part discussion with Professor Gilmore, with Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And, you know, Gilmore has written a couple books, including one titled Golden Gulag, Prison, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California. And she's considered one of the most preeminent scholars on prisons and what they call the machinery of carceral punishment and policing. And she really does offer a comprehensive roadmap, as the abolition movement does as well. And she lays out the need. And so one of the things that they talk about, and this is based on what they talk about in part two, First thing is Professor Gilmore debunks the theory that systems of organized violence, in other words, the police, will result in public safety, okay? She traces the nature of the concept of crime and how prisons and policing have expanded to basically absorb these functions. And she also pointed out that police have, in recent years, taken over, you know, a lot of the functions that really should have been left to the proper professionals, such as school counseling, mental health, and social work. And Professor Gilmore said that it reminded her of a point that Professor uh, Michael Siegel made in a book called Violence Work. And Siegel said that when you take away all these roles that the police have stolen, like, for instance, the school resource officer, which I'm totally against, actually, then what you find is that the police don't really have a specific role to play, uh, except basically violence work. And Professor Gilmore posed the real question that we really have to consider. Quote, under what kinds of social relations and relationships are people more likely to do harm to each other? End quote. And she also added the fact that, you know, internationally, other, many other nations have proven that a rich social safety net is far more effective at preventing violence than any police or soldiering force, and especially to work on issues of, of violence to innocents such as um, sexual assault, domestic and violence in general, and then also healthcare emergencies. And basically, Professor Gilmore said the work of police, and what Professor Siegel said too, is violence. Uh, and Siegel went on to say that is their job, to perform violence work. And to quote Professor Siegel, quote, police are hired to produce spectacular dominance that forces us to, to an unequal status quo, end quote. Now, there are a lot of people on the far right that would say, well, you're talking about all this colonialism and, and, and the, uh, all the um, excesses of predatory capitalism. And yes, we are. That's just it. This is about keeping everybody divided. The reason why cops can basically murder with immunity, criminally speaking, while qualified, is that while qualified immunity protects them from civil suits, again, you know, Professor uh, 
Professor Gilmore also pointed to the 1989 SCOTUS decision of Graham v. Connor, which basically protects police from criminal prosecution so they can basically execute with immunity. And, you know, again, Professor Gilmore said it's basically the, she called it the, quote, I killed this person because I feared for my life, end quote, excuse. And that is really what it's about. And, you know, we have to look at policing in general, all right? Policing in this country is really based, according to Gilmore, on the presumption of a perpetual enemy, at quote, who must always be fought but who can never be vanquished, end quote. And that's what police and the, poli- the prison industrial complex use. You know, it's this idea of this unspoken predator that's going to come at us at any time. And, of course, none of us have the capacity or the, um, uh, the competence to deal with our own communities, which is nonsense. We do have the competence. We're just not allowed to do it. Professor Gilmore also spoke to a personal uh, excerpt. She lost a cousin to a police murder. He was a member of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, and he was fighting um, basically for relevant black studies on the UCLA campus. And he was trying to persuade the Black Studies Department at UCLA to increase their curriculum so that it would also be anti-capitalist, anti-racist, and anti-war. And, of course, because he was fighting this, um, according to Professor, you know, Gilmore, um, COINTELPRO got involved in conjunction with the LAPD and some other counterinsurgency groups, and they saw to it that he did not survive. Now, you'll have a lot of people saying, well, gosh, you know, there must be some violent predators on the streets. We can't just disband our police departments. Nobody in the abolition movement except for a few individuals is saying that. The defund movement isn't about eradicating the police altogether necessarily. It's about defunding the present departments that are populated largely by predatory officers, firing those officers, taking, divesting some of the money that has been spent on policing and private security and reinvesting back into the community because basically policing is and policing and private security is being paid for by taking money away from public schools, by taking money away from public health care, by taking money away from mental health services, and so on and so forth. And this is about reinvesting back in that so that you have some perspective in terms of how things are budgeted and then demanding that you have a new department and that these officers are held to standards of transparency and accountability that are held to by the community and the officers are forced to obey the law. Okay. Bottom line. And, you know, we, we look at this and, and Professor Gilmore talks a lot about concepts of freedom and because, again, people say we have to have policing because otherwise we're not free to live safely. But she goes on to say that for some, freedom isn't enough. And the fact is, because of this underspoken or unspoken, what she calls foundation of colonialism, and it is true, with unredressed um, grievances for slavery and displacement and dislocation, that quite a few people, freedom isn't enough, okay? They, They can't flourish 
with the system the way it is. And she goes on to explain that W.E.B. Du Bois taught in his book, Black Reconstruction in America, that there were many post-Civil War communities in the South that created their own institutions for their own well-being and safety. And those institutions didn't rely on organized violence through a police department to keep things safe. But it did rely on them creating their own sets of public education and so on. But unfortunately, we live in an era where these monies that should have gone to public schools, should have gone to public health, should have gone to the social safety net, should have gone to helping small business people expand or create small businesses, that's all been diverted to the prison industrial complex and military policing. And this is, you know, again, it's not exactly a land grab. It, it is, though, however, a, a capital grab. All right, and we can't really separate this from the overall injustice in our society. This goes way beyond um, what abolitionists are talking about. It goes way beyond what reformers, in for instance, in the DNC say they want. They they want to limit the project of justice to convictions, and they want to invest in retraining, and that's that's nonsense. Um, and Professor Gilmore goes on to talk about how abolition is not about saving money. It's about, re again, redirecting that money. So, you know, she goes on to explain how Trump himself created money out of thin air to increase his popularity with his base with those stimulus checks. But it was also to protect the oligarchy. So we don't have any money for public services like schools and so on. In fact, in most cities and states, when there's an austerity budget that's pushed on everybody, the one public service that is never cut is police. Public schools are cut, mental health services are cut, uh, small business loans are cut. Um, you name it, it's cut except policing. If anything, police get more money, and this is a terrible disservice. And, again, it's based on keeping people that are really being abused from rising up and, and helping their own communities. And the whole idea of bipartisan reform, according to Professor Gilmore, and I agree with her, is not. All right? Uh, this is the idea that, you know, you're going to be able to label who should be punished. In other words, as she quoted Gingrich, the people we are afraid of, and then perpetually punish them. But that doesn't help the communities at large. It doesn't help people in this country that are either homeless or precariously housed or, you know, have lost their jobs. And... In addition to that, when we're talking about all this police retraining, but, you know, again, nothing, according to Professor Gilmore, nothing's being done to relieve basically any sort of account, to deal with any sort of accountability through, uh, through basically wrongdoing from white-collar businesses. And, and so, once again, you know, Professor Gilmore talks about how there's, you know, groups like people from the Olin Foundation or Koch Brothers or the Manhattan Institute. These are right-wing think tanks. And really, they, they're pretending like they're concerned about the police. You know, you'll see police officers taking a knee, but, or, or members of Congress taking a knee wearing tenty cloth, but it is a cheap, opportunistic publicity stunt and nothing else. And, and Professor uh, Gilmore points out the fact that, according to her, quote, anything that gets between them, in other words, these right-wing big money interests and their ability to extract value 
from labor and land um, is going to be basically pushed down. Um, and, and again, it, it, there is no talk about reform and, and, and going after the real criminals in corporate. Uh, you know, once again, in corporate, if it can't be proved that a business engaged in practices that were that they intended to harm people, like again, like for instance, the Flint water poisoning case, and guess what? That company can't be held responsible. If they say they didn't intend to poison the water, again, they're off the hook. And nobody's addressing these injustices. Instead, they're talking about basically a military police maintaining a military police force that is really a, a threat to all of us. Now, there's a really good quote here, and it, it's, it's something that you just, I couldn't leave out. And it says basically, and oh gosh, my, <laughs> my outline's about to die here. Um, the prison industrial, quote, the prison industrial complex isn't broken, doing exactly what it's meant to do. And that is exactly true. It is. GQ did an article, How Would Prison Abolition Actually Work, by Gabriela Paella. And it was um, basically done just this past month. And Paella pointed out the fact that in the United States, our incarceration rate is among the highest in the world. And we actually have about 5% of the world's population in terms of our general population, but we house, we have 25% of the world's prisoners. And most of those people are from communities of color, and this disproportionate imprisonment is done on purpose. Okay? This is to exploit labor, because these are lower wage workers. This is to divide the communities. So even lower income whites can buy into this idea that, well, at least they're not a person of color and they don't really stand together. And this is something that must be dealt with. Now, there are some leaders of what's called the Contemporary Prison Abolition Movement. I know I'm going quickly. um, The two leaders mentioned are, again, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Angela Davis. And in 1997, these two women uh, co-founded an organization called Critical Resistance, and the mission of Critical Resistance is to, quote, build an international movement to end the prison industrial complex by challenging the belief that caging and controlling people makes us safe. And the idea of prison abolition is something that has really evolved. Um, one of the men from this group, uh, Mr. Er- um, Irvin Woods uh, basically remembered seeing young people that were either queer or trans or maybe they were homeless, maybe they were runaways, 13, 14, 15 years old. They were on the streets and they were basically being abused by the system. They were virtually criminalized for being different, persecuted, and just trying to survive. This is not justice in any in any way, shape, or, or form. And the fact the abolition movement is really about undoing the society that continues to feed feed on and maintain the oppression of masses of people to quote that article and again they point out to the fact that since the prison industrial complex is so broad based 
the abolition must also include a broad-based set of strategies. And these strategies call for basically, uh, again, reinvestment. Uh, the, the abolitionists call police training to be a fraud. It just perpetuates the system of the prison industrial complex and that investment. And when you think about how much money has been spent, not only in police departments, but also by private security companies, the prison industrial complex is big business. And it's big business is draining our public coffers. So if your child is in a class of 40, guess what? That's probably because some private security company has a big, very lucrative uh, contract. This has been diverting funds from where they should go, mainly to benefit the community. And the idea of caging people just doesn't solve problems. Again, nobody is saying that we're going to totally abolish, or very few people are saying abolish the idea that there are some people that are dangerous and need to be separated from the rest of us. That does happen. But they talk about two things real quickly, restorative justice and transformation, transformative justice. Okay, and this is really a big deal. So the, the difference between restorative justice and transformative justice, which the abolition movement seeks both of them, to quote the article, quote, restorative justice is to try and restore relationships to how they were prior to harm being done. In other words, fix things. Transformative justice is about the purpose is to try and transform communities so the harm cannot happen again. Again, this is about building better communities. This is not about abusing people or murdering with impunity. And again, this isn't about letting the criminals run rampant, the violent predators. Nobody is saying that. That is a, a bogus claim. And so when we go down here and we look at this, the conclusion very simply is this. The abolition or defund the police movement comes from a variety of groups, primarily on the political left and from communities of color, that know from historic experience that increased military policing will only result in more murders committed by police. In the middle of a pandemic, the people in these groups have risked their lives in order to demand restorative and transformative justice for their communities and everyone else. And to reiterate, restorative justice is to restore relationships to how they were before the harm was done, and transformative justice is to transform communities so the harm won't happen again. This is true justice. The present discussion in mainstream corporate-run media centers on a dishonest spin regarding the calls to defund the police. With the exception of a small minority, most abolitionists are not calling for a society with no emergency first responders when violence breaks out. They are calling for a restructuring of our national priorities to reflect the genuine and dire need for community-based social services, including, but not limited to, Increased funding for public schools, public health services, mental health services, legal aid when an injustice is done, and small business development. In essence, they are calling for both restorative and transformative justice for oppressed groups and for the nation as a whole. Calls for police reform centered on, that are centered on training are disingenuous at the very least. Since six years of similar reform have passed, and people of color and other groups are still being routinely murdered by police in what can only be called the new Jim Crow. Rogue police departments, and that's what they are, rogue, which constitute the majority, must be disbanded. 
defunded and replaced with officers that are held fully accountable for their actions. Equally rogue SCOTUS or Supreme Court decisions such as Tennessee v. Garner and especially Graham v. Cotter must be rescinded for the human rights abuses they help to perpetuate. Police should not be allowed to murder with legal immunity. Politicians should not be allowed to write themselves as above the law. And the corporate billionaire class should not be allowed to continue the present system of wage and political slavery that we now have with the police serving as the overseers or violent capos enforcing the tyrannical dictates of the fiscal, of the fiscal oligarchy. And to quote Finally, Professor Gilmore, to quote her, she said, we all came together not because we thought that people in prison were innocent, but because we knew that prison wasn't solving the problem that we in our communities were struggling to resolve, end quote. And that's my report. Uh, Janine, that was amazing. I want to point out something, too. I, was, I uh, linked up an article called Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is a mm-hmm. must read. It's, it's a great piece. And in this piece, the, the person says, uh, they're, they're writing anonymously, and they say, it's important to note that well over 90% of the calls for service I handled were reactive, showing up yes. well after a crime took place. So the whole idea yes. of preventative is kind of stuff there. But then you look at the FBI's own statistics on the effectiveness right. on the cleared cases. Uh, uh, and this is from 2017 is uh, on uh, murder and manslaughter, you know, the big ones, homicide, mm-hmm. uh, you can clear, expect to clear about 60, 61% of the cases. And that means it doesn't necessarily mean that the that there was a conviction. It just means that the case was 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 figured out. Um, right. It, it, there is a problem with reporting in these statistics because not all murders are reported or a lot of missing persons just don't ever become right. uh, moved over into a homicide. As you go down the list right. and you get more into property crimes like burglary, burglary, right. larceny, theft, motor vehicle theft, these are the kinds of things I think that people uh, imagine when they imagine and, 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 being and again, safe. It doesn't really, the police don't really deal with it, okay? I, I taught in, for 30 years in some of the most dangerous neighborhoods in St. Louis City. And I can't remember a single instance where the police arrived before something violent happened. They don't control. Right. And, 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 and the fact is, very simply, we, when, when we don't have money for the community, you know, the, the tax money should actually benefit the community. The money spent on extreme policing, on the military weapons, on the private security contracts is literally taking money away from the schools, taking money away from social services. And, and uh, you know, again, it is yeah, morally important. We're getting up on a, on a, on a hard break. So, so, so I want to, I, I want to end on that. I just wanted to say when you, when you get to property uh, crimes, you're in the teens, you're in like 13% that are cleared. Yeah. And that doesn't take into account 
anything that, that, that wasn't reported. And so, I mean, it's, we're in negligible territory. Uh, we've only got 30 yeah. seconds left. Janine, uh, we're going to see you again next week. What a fabulous report and so timely Thank and you. so important. And I, I'm so appreciative of, uh, of your work. It's just, it blows me away oh, week after week. You. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And, and okay. thank you for having me, and have a good one. You too. And, guys, real quick before they cut us off, um, we'll see you next week. Uh, and uh, we've got some surprises in store for you. There are things happening. We'll be doing some new uh, shows on the network. And be looking for See you next week. Progressive News Network. Thank you.